This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty. Coming up on today's episode, we're heading to India. Well, we're not. Boris Johnson is. Uh, he's headed off for two days uh, for a trip to India uh, to meet Narendra Modi and others. Uh, we're going to examine why he's gone there, what it all means, Britain's relationship with India, what he wants to get out of it, what he might get out of it, and uh, and why India is, is so reluctant to publicly condemn Russia, the invasion of Ukraine. So that's coming up in our big thing. Uh, later on in the episode. Before that, though, as ever, we kick off with our economist panel. No night at the Marriott this week. Instead, we've got from The Times, Carol Lewis, and from The Spectator, Katie Balls. Katie, let's talk, first of all, about uh, your uh, cover piece in The Spectator today, uh, looking at Boris Johnson's future. Uh, can he survive? Um, but uh, Also, could you talk us through, um, treat me like an idiot... What exactly is happening this afternoon in the House of Commons? <laughs> um, very good question. Um, so ultimately, Labour are trying to push to have um, Boris Johnson actually face a, a Commons investigation into whether he misled Parliament, so if he is in contempt of Parliament. And there is a, a vote this afternoon. Uh, there's been lots of discontent amongst Tory MPs regarding that vote because they they worried that they were going to be told that they had to vote against this investigation and therefore you'll end up in a situation which would have perhaps echoes of the Owen Patterson debacle last year where um, ultimately lots of MPs had to um, vote to spare one of their own, um, the embarrassment of a suspension, only for um, things to get much worse and, and it become a botched attempt. So this motion is one where Number 10 have responded with an amendment that would delay any decision on whether the Privileges Committee should investigate until after Sue Gray's report. Now, this just means they're delaying the issue. Um, and I think the question is, are they delaying that because they didn't think they could win the vote? They didn't think they, they, they could tell their MPs to do that and they would back the Prime Minister? Or are they delaying it so their MPs don't have something Labour can throw at them in terms of the specific vote saying they blocked this? Um, but either way, I think the sense is the confrontation has been kicked down the road a bit further. If the government was confident that it could win the vote to kill the Labour motion today, they'd have gone ahead with it, wouldn't they? I mean, 
I think that is the case. Um, I think that the there was, I think the issue was potentially the fact that lots of Tory MPs were saying they would abstain. That is different, of course, than voting with Keir Starmer. Um, but therefore, you don't know how many abstentions you're going to get. It, to me, it seems that the Whips thought they could get quite a large number of abstentions. Um, and therefore, the vote could start to look tricky. Carol, are you following all of this? As, as, as a, a, a non-inhabitant of the Westminster village... Yes. Is this the point where public anger um, uh, at what's been going on dissipates because no one can follow what is happening? Or, as we were talking about this, um, the, the poll, the YouGov poll that we've had uh, done for this show, that actually when, was it three quarters of people think the Prime Minister's lied? Uh, that actually the public are making their minds up and, and, and that's what's putting, you yes. know... Yes, I think the public have made their minds up. There was a very um, telling line in Katie's piece, actually, when she said the word most associated with Boris Johnson by the public is liar. Yeah, that and amazing, um, yeah. what do you call it, word cloud. Yes, yeah. and, and even the uh, chair of the Privilege Committee, Chris Bryant, is going to have to recuse himself if there is an investigation because he's called Boris a liar. Yeah. I think people have made up their mind. What is starting to happen now is people are getting bored and fed up with Partygate. It's just dragging on and on and on. And that comes at a time when we've got disillusionment with their policies. There's a YouGov survey out today that shows that the public think the Conservatives are doing badly in almost all of the key policy areas. Economy, inflation, taxation, welfare, housing, um, confidence in NHS is at a 20-year low. In fact, the only things that people think they're doing any good on is defence and terrorism. Terrorism, yeah. Yeah. Um, how, how concerned are they about all that, Katie? I mean, cause one of the things that you get all the time, and people, you know, even after I tweeted this poll about how many people think Boris Johnson's life, people saying it's all priced in, Tory voters will go along with it anyway, they know that he's, not, he's never been, you know, Mr Trustworthy. However, on the YouGov tracker on uh, do you think Boris Johnson is trustworthy or untrustworthy, 12% of people now think he's trustworthy. Now, you know... When he won the election in 2019, it was about 20%. He did manage to get up to about 35 But to have 74% of people think he's untrustworthy when it was about half when he won the election in 2019, even for a man with not a reputation of being that trustworthy, to have 20, own, you know, three quarters of people to say you, you can't be trusted, that's really bad, isn't it? Ultimately, that, you can't just say that's priced in. Everyone thinks all politicians are, are liars. I mean, yeah, it's clearly really bad. Um, you can say, you know, Boris Johnson survives political situations that his colleagues don't. Uh, but I think even Boris Johnson's most optimistic backers wouldn't try and su- suggest the current situation is a good one or Boris Johnson is in a good place. I think there was some hope that the Ukraine crisis would almost... Um, not just by the Prime Minister time, but also show him in a different light. And you haven't really seen that in his personal approval ratings at all, which I think has been a disappointment to those around him. Um, in, in terms of the why is, why is he still there and why is it the case that when I speak to Tory MPs, some of whom who really don't like the Prime Minister, um, they think it's now more likely than not he leads them into the next election. Well, I think it's a few things. I think that there's always this belief amongst Tory MPs of Boris Johnson that he'll somehow, you know, something will come up and somehow he'll turn things around again. If you think about the number of times he was, you know, written off in, in the past in his career. So there's a sense of something will turn up. But also, I think largely, there's no one really MPs look around and think, oh, this is the person who should replace Boris Johnson, particularly because Rishi Sunak has had a difficult month for his popularity, has also plummeted. Uh, and therefore, 
I, I think backing Boris Johnson doesn't necessarily mean, um, you know, people believing that he is in a good place or, um, you know, uh, particularly happy about it. I suppose they could also be indulging in a bit of something might turn up-ness. Uh, some, yeah, I, someone I think might turn something, up. I think something not turn up and someone might turn up is... Well, lots of people are, and just as hope that actually what we're talking about here is almost beginning people getting tired of this issue. Yes, it's priced in that by most people that Boris Johnson did do wrong here, but if you move to something else, are people going to start thinking about other things in two years' time? And actually, will Partygate be less of an issue? And I think that's what MPs are hoping. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it, Carol? Is that there are sort of two things going on here. You can be angry about rule breaking in number ten. But when that sort of feed crosses over into your view of the Prime Minister, and ultimately we have a general election and the Prime Minister has to make lots of promises. He's going to do this, that and the other. Yes. And can you trust him to do that, particularly when their record on delivering on what they promised last time is yes. patchy? Yes, and, and we've got local elections next yeah. month as well. And I think that will be interesting to see what happens there. I think Katie's point is, is a pertinent one about there is no alternative. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, I think Ben Wallace is is doing very well, and people are, are pretty impressed with him on defence. But I mean, who else is there? Liz Trust. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that that's one of the key problems is people are saying, "Well, he, yeah, we think we think he's he's untrustworthy, but who do we trust more?" Yeah, whoever whoever it was who leaked the details of uh, Rishi Sunak's finances. Oh, yes, that, that was a was, killer blow. Whoever it was, whoever it was, has definitely helped Boris Johnson's, uh, uh, Boris Johnson's case. Um, let's, uh, let's move on and talk about um, James Matt, who's not here. We're going to talk about his column anyway. Uh, he, his column today is, it says it's better to be a jack of all trades than a master of uh, one. Um, as someone who was basically a jack of all trades, <laughs> a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of that, I have some, I have some sim- sympathy with this. Uh, what do you think, Carol? I did have sympathy with it. I thought he was very good, actually, as someone who specialised. So I was the typical person that James talks about. I did, you know, 10, 12 uh, GCSEs. I then did my four science A-levels and went on to do a very narrow science degree in genetics and microbiology. I basically spent five years looking in a petri dish or down a pint glass. I never read a novel. I didn't go to a play. I did none of this. Absolutely the antithesis of James. Totally uncultured. I got to my first job at Cambridge University Press and um, sat around a table for lunch and felt so stupid. Everybody had read books. Everyone had seen all the latest plays. And I just sat there and thought, oh, my God, I don't know any of this. I don't know anything. So I set about reading. I mean, literally, I sat down and read all of George Orwell, all of Milan Kundera. I just set about educating myself about the things that real people talk about around the dinner table because they don't talk about DNA. <laughs> <laughs> Until recently, actually. Until recently, yeah. Now we're all experts. Now we're all experts. Yes, and we do need experts. There is, there, you know, it's important that we do have experts and specialists, as we found out recently. But I think as a general rule, it's good to know a little about a lot and a lot about a little if that makes sense. Yes. We do need some deep knowledge about some subjects, but it's also important to have enough broad knowledge to be able to have, play a, a part in, in, in the community. To, yeah, yeah. You know, my, my, I encourage my daughter, who's gone through the English system, to go to Scotland or America for university because they have much wider degrees. Ah, uh, that's interesting. As a, it's a lot, yeah, yeah, lot yeah. broader. So she's been able to, in her first year, for instance, she's obviously turned 18, can vote and said, I know nothing about politics. So she's taken a politics course. Just to be able to have that ability 
to learn and to play with studying is important, I think. So are you, uh, what about you, Katie? Are you uh, a jack of all trades or are you uh, a master of one? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure I can even claim to be either of them. I suppose more a jack of all trades. <laughs> so therefore, um, probably missing quite a few trades out there. Um, I, I, I share your view, anyway, Matt, reading that piece, which made me feel a bit better about not having particularly specialised knowledge um, in, in a way. Um, and I think it does make a good point, which is obviously you do need in some areas to have it. But if you are so focused on one thing, it, often you can lose a, that comparison or that perspective, which can bring a wider understanding when, when things actually meet and, and you have to say, almost go from theory to practice. There is also, I think, something about being a political journalist. More does mean that you do skim across, well, in normal times, I'd say sort of maybe pre-Brexit, you would skim across a whole load of areas. You do a bit of planning and then a bit of museums policy and then a bit of schools and a bit of... And actually it just means that when any of those topics come up in this fictional dinner party setting... You can have, you know, you can, you, you, you're dimly aware of some of this stuff in a way that if you're the health reporter, the education reporter, you are in your, your silo a bit. So we, was actually what happens, then what happens with something like COVID comes along and actually all political journalists have to give way to... Yeah, to the science, not to Tom Whipple. <laughs> but I think Jalen's great for that. I mean, I started off as a science journalist, became a business journalist, then a finance journalist, and now doing housing. And yeah. you can move around. You yeah. can explore and learn yeah. about new things. I think there are, as you say, the limits to being a jack of all trades in the sense there was obviously that point on, you know, people who were experts on Twitter when it comes to the pandemic suddenly become experts of the next big thing and yes. and mm. and can put themselves forward as very authoritative figures. And that's when actually you do want to have the people who are real policy experts, not just um, very quickly good at you know, scanning articles and then um, speaking as though they are, they are the authority on the matter. Yes. Because I people, think that, that can be when you're misleading. People so who knew how trick. to be, yeah, people who, who knew how to implement Brexit uh, then uh, deal with the pandemic <laughs> and then defeat Russia. Uh, those, yeah. people, that yes, that group, yes. They... So I think be a jack of all trades, but also know your limits. Katie Balls and the Spectator and Carol Lewis from the Times, of course. You can uh, read Carol in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Boxed. Up next, it's our big Indian takeaway. Why is Boris Johnson headed east? 1 size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, so as things hot up in Westminster, Boris Johnson's opted for an Indian takeaway, heading east to meet Narendra Modi on a two-day trip to the subcontinent. But why is he there? What does he want to get out of it? Why is India so reluctant to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine? What influence does Britain still have 75 years after Indian independence? Well, today the Prime Minister is in Gujarat, where he'll meet representatives from India's dairy industry, and then he's off to meet uh, Prime Minister Modi in Delhi tomorrow. Now, ordinarily, of course, this would be a huge diplomatic event with one of the world's most important leaders in a country with significant, if uh, at times slightly difficult, historical ties to the UK. But, at least here in the UK, it's being overshadowed by the Partygate row back at home. As the Times' political editor, Stephen Swinford, who is travelling with the Prime Minister, reports. I'm speaking to you from one of the government's chartered planes on the way to India, where Boris Johnson will be spending the next 48 hours. We've just had the Prime Minister join us at the back of the plane for what is known in our trade as a huddle, where he sits down surrounded by 20 journalists and we fire questions at him on a succession of topics. He was in a good mood and there was plenty of news, not least on Partygate. The Prime Minister told us that the scandal over Partygate did not matter to voters who want the government to focus on the real issues. It wasn't particularly subtle. He was essentially claiming that people want to move on and it's time to move on. He also said he could not envisage any circumstances in which he would resign and said that he plans to fight and win the next general election. His comments reflect what people have been telling us privately for some time, that while the Prime Minister is publicly apologetic, he privately believes it's time for everyone to move on. The Prime Minister also hit back at the Archbishop of Canterbury. On Tuesday night, the Prime Minister told Tory MPs that the Archbishop had misconstrued the government's plans to send migrants to Rwanda and suggested he had been less critical of Vladimir Putin after he invaded Ukraine. The Church of England said this was a disgraceful slur and hit back today, but far from recanting, Boris Johnson dug in. He told us that the Rwanda plan was morally right and would save migrants and repeated his criticism of the Archbishop of Canterbury. The Prime Minister also had strong words on Ukraine. Peace talks, he told us, are pointless. How can Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian Prime Minister, negotiate while a crocodile has his jaws around his leg? Johnson wants this trip to be about the UK's relationship with India, the prospects of a post-Brexit trade deal and stronger ties with Modi. The reality is that as much as Johnson wants to put Partygate behind him, it will dominate this trip and the fallout from it is likely to continue for days to come. That's Stephen Swinford, The Times' uh, political editor, travelling with the Prime Minister on uh, his trip to India today. Well, already this morning, after you touched down, Boris Johnson's visitor a JCB factory in India, of course, owned by the Tory toner, Lord Bamford. Uh, he's also been presented with a copy of A Guide to London, written by Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, that was why he was visiting uh, Gandhi's ashram in Gujarat. Obviously, all of this is a, is a nice break from the parliamentary shenanigans uh, back in the House of Commons. This is what P- Boris Johnson had to say in Gujarat about the vote on whether or not he misled Parliament. I'm very keen for every possible form of, of uh, scrutiny and if the House of Commons can do, I think, whatever it wants to do. Uh, but all I would uh, say is I don't think that uh, that should happen until uh, the investigation is 
completed. And that's my only uh, point. I've, and I've said this time and time again, let's get the, uh, let's let the, the, the investigators do their stuff uh, and, and then knock this thing on the head. That was Boris Johnson uh, speaking uh, just after he arrived in India. But let's take a break from Partygate. Hurrah, you say. We'll return to that later on when we'll bring you uh, what is happening in the House of Commons. Uh, And let's actually look at this trip uh, to India and what Boris Johnson hopes to achieve. Already uh, this morning, he had, well, number 10 have been trumpeting um, uh, a billion pounds of new commercial deals being struck uh, or a billion pounds of new investment and export deals being struck by UK and Indian businesses. Number 10 claiming it's going to create 11,000 jobs uh, across the UK. Uh, the other big focus, of course, is the Britain's hopes of securing a post-Brexit trade deal. They expect to offer relaxing visa restrictions for Indians. It's sort of when Boris Johnson meets uh, Narendra Modi tomorrow. He'll only lightly tread on the topic of India's failure to fully conf- condemn Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. While Modi will likely raise his concerns about the UK's military ties with Pakistan and the increased terror threat to India due to the weapons left behind in Afghanistan. Well, let's um, assess now Britain's relationship with India. I'm delighted to be joined by Sir Dominic Asquith, who until 2020 was the UK's High Commissioner to India, uh, Britain's most senior diplomat there. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. Um, If we weren't talking about Partygate or the pandemic or all the other things which which dominate, this would normally be a big deal, wouldn't it, the Prime Minister heading to India like this? Yeah, it is. Uh, I had Theresa May when she was Prime Minister there. It was a big event. So this is important and the current Prime Minister has tried on a couple of occasions before to go there. So uh, it's great that he's got there. Uh, Indeed, it is big. Uh, But I have to say, listening to your intro, I mean, 4,000 miles east of here, China looms much bigger than Russia uh, in terms of the geopolitics. You just think of the elections in South Korea, elections coming up in Australia. Uh, It's in terms of foreign policy, it's China, which is big and for India, really, really important. China is still uh, encamped on what the Indians call a bit of territory of theirs up in the Himalayas. So it's it's, uh, very immediate for them. And they get very nervous when they see Russia and China get into a clinch which might exclude them uh, and always regarded the sanctions from their perspective, the sanctions that came from the West on, on Russia after Crimea as a mistake in inverted commas because it pushed in their view, Russia into the arms of China. So China's big, Russia, very important for them uh, in terms of defense, but less, I mean, it's been declining but it also has a sort of legacy political relationship. Russia protected Indian interests, particularly on Kashmir, in Indian views more uh, steadfastly than some in the West. And then they've got a third sort of fence to straddle, which is the relationship with the West and the US and the global markets. And the relationship with the US has been in the ascendant over the last 20 years. If you think of the trade between India and the US compare it to trade between India and Russia, it's about 20 times bigger with the US. So it's, you know, it's really important and the growth in the Indian market, very much the focus of the Prime Minister's visit, the, the growth of the Indian economy uh, is dependent uh, essentially on access to the global trading network. Uh, and who's important in the global trading network? Europe, UK, US. 
when you sort of list all those countries that India's concerned about, um, and, and Britain, where, where does Britain fit? Into, I mean, clearly, sort of, Britannia rules the waves and all of that, and we think Britain's the most important place in the world. How how big a deal is this for India, if you like, Boris Johnson going to uh, going to India? How how um, uh, how much notice do they take? How much clout does Britain have when it was only a couple of years that you were you were still there? How how easy was it for you to go knocking on the doors of government? How much notice do you think India uh, takes of Britain or, or spends time thinking about Britain, given all of those other concerns you were just laying out? Uh, it spends quite a bit of time thinking about Britain uh, with all the historical legacy, obviously, uh, that exists between the two countries. Uh, uh, and uh, as uh, Britain is viewed by Indians of all generations, uh, it is still very, very important. Uh, we used to have a huge number of Indian students coming over. There was what Mr. Modi called the living bridge between Britain and India, which was built on the back, not just of the students that uh, came from India uh, over to the UK, uh, and in many cases stayed and then became extremely successful in Britain, as the uh, very large Indian origin community in Britain demonstrates, but also were critical in various bits of uh, our uh, economy, not least uh, the health service. But today it's sort of sharper. It is very focused on the strengths of both countries, which is science, technology. Uh, and that's uh, uh, understandable why that should be the focus, was the focus very much of my time, is focused still, I think, of this visit. And if you think through the strengths that both have, Britain and India, in fintech in technology of the financial sector uh, in terms of healthcare biotechnology security defense space uh, you name it the energy that exists in the small and medium-sized enterprises the sort of entrepreneur backbone of any economy uh, that's where the two strengths of uk and india rest so focusing on that uh, appeals quite rightly uh, to the strengths of both and the political importance of both. Do you? Uh, what kind of man is is Narendra Modi to to deal with? There's clearly been concerns that India is becoming more authoritarian. Uh, is that a fair character? I mean, you know, clearly his party hugely dominates national politics in in India. Is he a sort of Western democratic leader that is we would understand it, or, or is there a concern that, that India is becoming more authoritarian under under his leadership? I always find I always find him a very pragmatic uh, political leader, uh, by which I mean, um, like almost all political leaders, he's focused on what he thinks is the most important thing for India. Modernizing India uh, is top of his list uh, and maintaining the economic growth so they have established this program of self-reliant india making uh, the indian economy bringing it up to date making it attractive uh, but at the same time uh, modernizing doesn't mean westernizing uh, and recognizing that that's a distinction that is very prominent in indian minds and mr modi's minds uh, is important. Yeah, it, it is, he, he, you know, he is strongly uh, focused on the Hindu uh, background, culture, history of India. Uh, but that shouldn't uh, blind us to the reality 
that he's looking to develop those relationships and partnerships that benefit India. And he is very conscious that it needs to be a partnership that benefits both. Uh, just funny, because while I've got you, I, could be, uh, I couldn't have the, the great grandson of Asquith on the show and not ask about, um, uh, given everything that's going on in politics right now, there's been lots of speculation about, well, you couldn't possibly remove a prime minister in the middle of a, of a conflict. Your great grandfather, uh, Asquith himself, was, was forced out of office during the First World War. Have you got any sympathy with the idea that you can't, can't remove a prime minister during, during conflict? Uh, I'm not going to comment on that, <laughs> but thank, thanks for trying. It, <laughs> it was uh, worth uh, a go. Uh, How, I mean, is that, is that a thing that sort of hangs up? Was it something you were sort of always aware of growing up, that your great-grandfather had been Prime Minister? Uh, yes, uh, of course. You can't. He was uh, he was the longest serving Prime Minister in the 20th century until uh, Mrs Thatcher took over um, that mantle and then uh, Tony Blair. But, um, no, very conscious of that, particularly uh, since he was around for the first two years of the First World War. Uh, I'm only glad that uh, he was not around uh, for key bits of our relationship with India when I was in India. But yeah, no, of course, uh, you, you don't live with that lame name without um, uh, without being conscious being of, conscious of it. what he was doing. Uh, so Dominic Asquith, uh, a long-serving diplomat, being very diplomatic there. Uh, thank you very much for that. It's Dominic Asquith. Earlier, I caught up with Manish Tiwari. He's an Indian MP, former government minister. He's a senior national spokesperson for India's opposition party, the Indian National Congress. Well, as I understand that Prime Minister Johnson would be landing into Ahmedabad uh, or would have landed today in the morning. And given the fact that uh, Great Britain slash United Kingdom and India have uh, a very historical relationship uh, going back now many centuries, uh, the relationship uh, being convoluted in uh, a certain sense of the word, carrying the baggage of history. But notwithstanding all that, uh, we uh, have a connect uh, which uh, is both uh, in terms of language, even in terms of uh, shared constitutional traditions. So, therefore, uh, what we uh, or I would really expect is that the visit of Prime Minister Johnson represents a continuing of the uh, relationship which has evolved over all these years. Uh, especially with regard to uh, the ties that we have in the field of education, in the shared concerns of national security, uh, you know, a certain alignment of views when it comes to uh, very, very public events which are taking place around the world. So I guess uh, this uh, visit uh, should help in uh, bringing about a greater amount of convergence uh, and alignment on these issues. You mentioned events around the world. We, we understand Boris Johnson's going to try to avoid the subject of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Do you think that's a mistake? The, the aggression, uh, the Russian aggression on Ukraine is uh, most unfortunate. It is horrendous. Uh, it has uh, displaced millions of uh, innocent people. It's costing a, a lot of lives. And uh, as I had told Parliament when I led the discussion on the situation in Ukraine, that there comes a time when you need to tell your friends that they are wrong, given the fact that India has a relationship, a concurrent relationship with Russia. I think this is a time that uh, the government of India needs to leverage that relationship and do some uh, very straight talking uh, to the Russians. Uh, though uh, Minister Jai Shankar, who was 
uh, listening on to the debate and finally replied to it, uh, did say that uh, when uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov had come to India, uh, we were uh, fairly blunt and straight in telling them that this war must end. Just explain for people listening in the UK, why is India so reluctant to criticise Russia when Russia has been condemned by other countries around the world? Look, uh, condemnation only gets you so far. It does not uh, get you beyond that. Honestly, uh, the the event that led up to uh, the conflict in Ukraine or the aggression in Ukraine and especially the reluctance and the diffidence of the Western powers, who were guarantors to the Budapest Memorandum, that when the push came to the shove, you know, they seemed to be ill-prepared to do heavy lifting. So I guess uh, people are uh, looking at uh, all these events very carefully and also uh, taking into account that the Anglo-American alliance which was essentially responsible of uh, stripping Ukraine of its nuclear shield way back in 1994, uh, seems extremely reluctant to put boots on the ground when it comes to uh, providing substantive aid uh, to Ukraine as it struggles with this uh, aggression. And coupled with that, the events that we saw unfolding in Afghanistan in the August of 2021 only add to the disquiet that uh, that that uh, possibly uh, the West and uh, especially the United States is not uh, willing to undertake those long sustainable commitments uh, which require to stabilize you know some of the most volatile parts of the world. One of the discussions which has come out of the uh, what's happening in Ukraine is the idea that the world is is shifting, that actually Russia, China, uh, India uh, too, are the, you know the 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 the, the um, spheres of influence where the power lies in the world is shifting away from the traditional powers like America and and Britain, uh, uh, it's essentially sh- shifting east, I suppose. Um, uh, do you do you think that is right? Do you think that people in Britain need to get used to the fact that Russia, China, India are going to are now big players on the world stage? Well, that's an incorrect characterization. You see, first of all, uh, the events in Ukraine are really a European war. I mean, they challenge the entire security architecture created post the Second World War and uh, especially uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and its uh, lurch eastwards since the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989. But undoubtedly, uh, a new iron curtain seems to be descending across the world and not only across Europe. And behind this new iron curtain will lie the civilizations of Russia, China, and Iran. And India, in this context, will have to maintain its strategic autonomy, go back to the position uh, which it had taken between 1946 and 1989, that uh, we will uh, not side with something which is blatantly immoral, but at the same time, we will maintain the flexibility, we will maintain the option, 
of actually engaging in our own in the enlightened national interest. Manish, it's really good to speak to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, uh, and thank you for your time this morning. Thank you very much. That's Manish Tawari, though, an Indian MP, former government minister. Uh, he's the national spokesperson for India's opposition party, the Indian National Congress. Uh, well, let's now speak to uh, a journalist in Delhi, where Boris Johnson's heading tomorrow. Uh, Parsa Venkateshwari Rao uh, joins me now live. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Um, listening to the views there of Manish Tawari, uh, how widely are his views held in India? How, um, like I said, he was the opposition party. What's the sort of uh, Narendra Modi's world view of, uh, of Britain? I think uh, uh, there is a general consensus about the uh, the Indian uh, position, strategic position, though they may not agree with uh, the particular formulation of the Prime Minister Modi, uh, which is idea of India as a spiritual mentor or a global spiritual mentor. Um, and how big and uh, how big news is it, Boris Johnson being in India today? Um, um, Indians gripped by this news? Is it making the headlines at all? Not at all. I think the majority of Indians have uh, uh, got other uh, issues to be concerned with uh, right now. Uh, One is the economy and the other is the uh, rising tension between the communities uh, as a result of the majoritarian policies of the Modi government. Um, and what are the what are those issues? Talk me through some of the the issues. It's still the the, the coronavirus and the pandemic. Um, is that is that still playing a big part in in Indian politics right now? How concerned are Indians about the situation in Ukraine and and the threat posed by Russia as well? No, what the uh, Indians are more uh, uh, worried about the uh, domestic economy and uh, the growth prospects, the lack of jobs, and um, they are also worried about. Uh, other social issues like the relationship between the uh, Hindus and Muslims uh, because of the violence that has erupted in some parts of the country between the two communities, groups of the two communities. Um, The Ukraine war is there at the back of their mind because of its impact on the economy. Uh, The rise in the price of oil and gas and uh, that has a cascading effect on the uh, other prices in India. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10, email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on very soon. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.